0: And if you are a father here this morning, I want to encourage you. There's a whole lot of things you could be doing on a Sunday morning. And what you choose to spend your time, especially on Father's Day, how you choose to spend your time speaks volumes to your kids. And it it tells them, it communicates to them what you value most. And so I want to commend you for being here on Father's Day. So Ephesians chapter 5, we're taking a break from the book of Luke. We've been walking through the book of Luke, and just like on Mother's Day, we wrestled with the question, how can we honor mothers? On this on Mother's Day, how can we best honor mothers? Today, we're going to take a look at, okay, how can we best honor fathers? And so on Mother's Day, when we asked that question, the result was we actually took a look at what is God's design for men, and specifically for husbands, and we actually looked at Ephesians chapter 5, and we learned that husbands should love like Jesus, that, that husbands should love graciously, that they should love sacrificially, that they should love redemptively, they should love their wives as their own body. And so today, as we wrestle with the question of how can we as a church honor mothers, we're going to take a look at the desire. how can we love, <laughs> love and honor fathers, we're going to take a look at God's design for women. So spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about a very dangerous, a very uh, controversial subject here, a difficult topic, submission. And some of you, your ears just turned red. What the Bible calls wives to do here in Ephesians chapter 5, though, I want you to understand it's in the context of what we talked about On Mother's Day, it's in the context of husbands loving their wives as Christ loves the church. There's an old Aesop fable about the wind and the sun. The wind and the sun were in a dispute. They were trying to decide who was the most powerful, and so they're debating back and forth. And and the sun looks down, and they and they both see this man with a, a cloak on a coat. And so the sun makes this challenge. He says, "Look." Whichever one of us can get that man to take his coat off is the most powerful. And so the sun says, I'll let you go first, wind. And so the sun hides behind a cloud, and the wind starts to blow with all of its might. And the harder the wind blew, the more the man grabbed onto his cloak and and wouldn't let go until the wind finally just gave up, exhausted. And so it was the sun's turn, and of course the sun pops out from the cloud and shines with all of his glory. And of course, it warms up so much that the the man eventually takes off his coat. I think there's an important lesson there. And there's a reason that the Apostle Paul in in Ephesians chapter 5 spends so much time talking to the husbands about how they ought to love their wives. Look at how much space he dedicates to that compared to how much he talks to the women. Because there's a reason that uh, he talks and says, look, wives submit to your husbands, but then he goes on and on about how husbands ought to love their wives because the husbands, as husbands, we can't force submission, but we can inspire it through our love. Again, while we look at this text, it addresses wives directly directly. But I think it's important for all of us to understand what's going on in this text, and in our culture especially. Like I said on Mother's Day, there is a, unfortunately, there's a ton of confusion out there when it comes to gender roles. Some people look at the very idea of gender roles as just simply a man-made idea. It's a, it's a result of the fall. But if you study Scripture, you start to realize that the, role, the gender roles were there from the very beginning. They, were, they preceded The fall. They definitely were corrupted by the fall, but sin corrupts the gender roles. But God designed men and women to be equal in value, equal in dignity. They were both made were both made in the image of God. But just like the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, all three have uh, equal value, equal dignity. They're all three God, but they have different roles, distinct roles roles that complement one another I remember when cam and I we were getting married and I was I was a new believer but I, I was uh, had read a bunch and so I got pretty cocky and I remember going through marriage counseling with the pastor that was going to marry us and I had the audacity to tell the pastor look I want you when you During the wedding ceremony, I want you to preach on this passage, and I don't even remember what the passage was. I think it was intentionally trying to share the gospel, Uh, and and we got to the ceremony, and he didn't preach on the passage I told him to preach on, and at first I was kind of annoyed. He preached on Ephesians 5, though, and now 20 years later, and after performing a few weddings myself, I recognize why he chose Ephesians chapter 5. In fact, most of the weddings that I perform now, I preach through Ephesians chapter 5 because in this text, God tells us something profound about marriage. He tells us the meaning of marriage, the purpose of marriage. and And he says, look, marriage primarily is not about just some, it's not about something that's just functional. It's not about economics, it's not about being stable. Financially, it's not about you having kids so that when you get old, you can have somebody that's going to take care of you. And it's not about just fulfilling romantic desires. It's not about finding Mr. Right and your soulmate and living happily ever after. It's about something much bigger than that. The purpose of marriage is to prepare you for heaven, marriage points to a much greater reality. In Ephesians chapter 5, what we see is that marriage is to be a reflection of a greater union. The, The union of marriage is to be a reflection of the union between Christ and the church. Paul says that this is the mystery of marriage. That's what makes marriage so sacred. And so this means that, look, if you're single, you should feel no shame. First of all, Jesus was single. The apostle Paul was single. But marriage does not complete you. Jesus does that. It is not ultimate. Marriage, is, he is ultimate. Marriage is just a shadow of the reality. And so we're going to walk through Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 25, I'm sorry, 24. And I want us to wrestle with the question, what, was God's, what is God's design for women, specifically wives? And let's pray one more time before we jump into this. Father, I pray that right now that I would have a healthy fear not of other people and what they might think of me, but I would have a healthy fear of you and of your word. I pray that you would protect my words from speaking falsely, trying to water down the text. I pray that you would help us not just to see what we want to see in this text, but we would see the truth and we would see your glory and we would see the benefit of it knowing that you have have preserved this for your glory and for our good. Would you teach us and change us during this time, Lord? In Jesus' name, amen. All right, take a look. Verse 22, chapter 5. Ephesians, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, in our culture, this is one of the most unpopular and offensive passages of scripture, and I recognize that preaching on a passage like this in our culture is risky. Uh, In fact, I've read articles recently that accuse churches who preach about biblical submission often encourage a culture of abuse and misogyny. I I desperately don't want to do that. Our culture hates this word, submission. And maybe you walked in here this morning and that word makes you cringe. And I would argue that when churches abuse this text, when churches teach this text wrongly, when they teach it out of context, it can produce that kind of culture. And so I want to be very careful, very sensitive. In fact, I had my wife read the sermon this morning before before I came to make sure I wasn't saying anything, something that was totally off base. But I don't, I don't want to ignore this text. All of God's word is given to us for his glory, for, for our good. I want us to understand this. I want us to be changed by this. And so when we come to a text that, that seems offensive, there's going to be texts in the Bible that offend you. I mean, the, the, the theme, one of the main themes of the Bible is to repent, to change, We don't like to change, and so there's going to be parts of Scripture that offend you. If you're, if you're not offended by Scripture, you're probably not reading it right. And so there's going to be times. And so when you come to a passage of Scripture like this that offends you, you've got a choice to make. Either you can revise your beliefs based on God's Word, or you can try to revise God's Word based on preconceived notions that you have. So my prayer is that God would change us rather than the other way around. But let's make sure that we understand the text correctly. We need to look at context. Context is king. You've got to understand the context of what's going on. And so you need to look at the passage right before this. Look at the verse right before verse 22. Verse 21 says, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is huge. That is significant. And so the command for wives to submit to their husband is a specific application of a principle given to all believers. We're all commanded to submit to one another, okay? That's, that's significant. But this, the command to submit is specifically applied and differently applied to husbands and to wives in this passage. So the, the word submit, it's a military term. It means to submit your agenda to the greater whole. In other words, it's willingly giving up something that you desire for the sake of something greater. Both the husband and the wife are commanded to submit to one another just in different ways. The husband, you are to submit to your wife the same way that Christ submits to the church and sacrificing his own life for her. Wives, you are to submit to your husbands differently though. You are to submit to your wives as to the Lord, as to the head. Okay, so what does he mean by the head? Two meanings theologians say that that can be. The head can mean source or it can mean authority. And in this context, I think it means both. And often, the source of something is typically the authority that it has. In fact, the word authority comes from the word what? Author. And if you author something, you're usually the the source of it, right? When when an author creates something, they have a measure of authority over it. For example, if you author a book, you get to name the book. If you author a child, you create a child, you get to name your child, right? Well, think about creation story. Back in Genesis chapter 2, God authored creation. But it's significant that he doesn't name everything, does he? He gives the responsibility and he grants the authority to the man to name all of the animals, right? And and why does he do that? Why would would God do that? I mean, did he just get tired? Okay, I'm I'm done. I just don't have any, I've run out of ideas. No, of course not. Of course not. He was trying to tell Adam and Eve something significant. He was giving him that responsibility. And then when God comes to creating Eve, that's the first time, remember, that that God says that something is not good. It's not good for Adam to be alone. And so he creates a helper suitable Eve for him. And what does he do? He brings Eve to the man for him to name her. He's trying to communicate something significant there. God creates Adam out of the dirt. What does God create Eve out of? Out of Adam's rib. That's significant. And then he gives him the authority to name her. Man man was designed by God to have the role of leader, of head. Marriage is kind of like a dance. If you've got two people that are trying to lead the dance, what's going to happen? It doesn't go well at all. I mean, you're just going to be stepping on each other's toes all the time. God has given the lead role in the dance of marriage to men. John Piper does a really good job of very precisely defining headship and submission. He does it like this. He says, headship is the divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home. Then he says, Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. Now, go, if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, the woman is called, and I said this earlier, the helper. Now, that sounds kind of like God's using kid gloves with Eve, right? I mean, oh, your daddy's little helper, right? But that's not the Hebrew meaning of that word at all. If you go back to the original language, that, the Hebrew word there is Ezra. And if you go to the psalm, we see that God is called our Ezra, our helper. And so if anything, when God calls Eve, an Ezra to, to the husband, he's, he's not implying that she's in any way inferior to the man. In fact, she's pro, he's implying that the man is the one that is lacking something and needs help. And so, yes, amen. Submission then does not mean that women are in any way inferior. Genesis chapter 2 screams that. That we are both made in God's image, equal in value, equal in dignity. It also means, or it does not, submission does not mean that the men are to be dictators. That the wife is to be like this slave that caters to all their whim, whims. The, the husband is told first to lay down his own life out of love like, he, like Christ loves the church. And so men, your leadership should, should be characterized by, by service and, and sacrifice, not by domineering and, and by demanding Submission does not mean putting the husband in place of Christ. He is not your your Savior. Wives submit out of reverence for Christ. Submission does not mean that the husband's word is absolute. Only Christ's word is absolute. No wife should follow their husband into into sin. Also, submission does not mean that the men make all the decisions by themselves. Submission doesn't mean that, that you check your brain at the alder women. A, a wife that is a good helper is going to, with with humility, of course, give counsel. They're, they're gonna ask questions. And at times they're gonna appeal that the husband is, would change his mind on a decision. And husbands should recognize their own fault. They should recognize that they are not Christ and that they have idols. And that we, that we need the wisdom, we need to listen to the wisdom of our, our, of our wives, and we should encourage them to give us wisdom. They should want their wives to be excited about the decisions that they're making as a family. And so yes, biblical submission does mean that the man has the responsibility, the heavy responsibility of being the tiebreaker, but that should not happen very, that should happen very rarely. And as a man, it, it shouldn't be something that you're excited about it all. It's a, it's a heavy burden. When you and your wife can't get on the same page about something, it should cause you pause. It, it, before you make a decision, you should seek out the counsel of, of other godly people in your life. You, you should study the Bible. You should spend time in prayer before you ever pull that kind of trump card. You should make sure you've listened to your wife and you, you understand her concerns, that you should make sure that you clearly understand your own motives. Now, going back to to Piper's definition, he said submission then is to honor and affirm your husband's leadership and to help him carry it through according to your gifts. And so submission is not so much a specific behavior as much as it is an inclination of the will to to be willing to say yes to your husband's leadership. It's a disposition of the Spirit to support as he initiates. Ephesians 5 doesn't really spell out exactly what it looks like because it's going to look different from house to house, from marriage to marriage, because we all have different gifts. It's going to to look different based on the quality of your your husband's leadership. And, And while Ephesians 5 doesn't give us specific answers, it does give us some direction skip down to verse 33. Verse 33 is really a summary passage of Paul's directions to husbands and wives. And he he says this, however, let each one of you love his wife, talking to husbands there, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, it's interesting there because where you would expect Paul to say, let the wife see that she submits to her husband, he doesn't use that word there. He uses a different word. He uses the word respect. A wife who desires biblical submission to her husband is going to seek to respect him. And usually, when you're first married, that's pretty easy to do, right? I mean, your, your husband is sort of romantic. Uh, just, I mean, he's like your knight in shining uh, um, armor. He, he, he's doing all these wonderful things, but eventually the, the, that armor begins to, to crack and to tarnish, and, and, and you begin to notice his, his sin. You begin to notice his weaknesses, and before long, your heart maybe starts filling with disappointment, maybe a little bit of, of fear. Uh, maybe your own pride gets in there sometimes, and it begins to be difficult to respect your, your husband, Let me ask some penetrating questions to the wives to kind of evaluate your heart towards your husband. What are you more aware of, his strengths or his weaknesses? Or or let me put it another way. What do you find yourself saying, either verbally, out loud, or just in your heart more? Do you find words that are encouraging or words of criticism? do you tend to, to think this way? If I commend him in this area, that means I'm condoning everything else that he's doing wrong. Do you tend to think that way? And if this is you, don't, I don't. my goal is not to make you despair. God is not shocked by, by this kind of attitude. In fact, this is why we need the gospel in our lives, this is, we, we recognize the gospel is able to change us. When you remember the grace that has been poured out of, on us on the cross, that Christ died for your sin, it teaches us to be able to look at our husbands differently, to, to be gracious with your husband. Uh, just like we talked about on Mother's Day, that, that a husband is to love his wife graciously, like Christ loves the church was willing to die for us even while we were our sinners. The call for wives is to respect their husbands graciously, even when they don't deserve it. Paul says that wives should submit in everything, not just when the husbands have done something that you approve of. In fact, the the apostle Peter goes even further. In 1 Peter 3, 1, 1 and 2, He says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And so Peter is encouraging wives that find themselves in a marriage where their husbands are unbelievers, that they should still respect them. And I think this principle would apply if if you're a wife who has a husband who claims to be a Christian but just isn't acting like a Christian. Respecting your husband doesn't mean you pretend that he's perfect, but it does mean that you, that you like Peter is saying here, that, that, that you, you honor him. Um, if, you, if you don't believe Peter is, I, I don't believe Peter here is saying that, that you should never talk to your husband. Okay, don't get me wrong. I, I, don't, I don't think that you should approach an unhealthy Marriage where your, your, your husband is just dysfunctional by ignoring the problems and never talking. I don't think that's what Peter is saying here when he says without word. I think he's saying he's referring to like a nagging word, a constantly critical word. And, and I don't think he's talking about, look, if you're in an abusive relationship, that you should stay in it. I don't think that's respecting your husband. I don't think that's what he's meaning here. But practically, what does it mean? I think it means this. I think it means that you're regularly showing esteem for him, both publicly and privately. I think it means that, that, that you're, you're looking to him and you're finding his strengths and you're pointing those things out. And the goal is not to boost his self-image, but to affirm the role that God has called him to. It's to call attention to the grace that God has been working on in his life and to communicate that, look, I'm supporting you and I'm supporting what God is doing in you. As imperfect as you are. Listen, when sinners say, I do, there's going to be issues. There's going to be problems. You're going to see sin in your your husband. But look for the strengths and encourage those things. And so this should be done in thought and in word and in deed. And so you should respect him in thought Develop habits of directing your thoughts about your husband in ways that honor him and honor God. Dwell, thankfully, on your husband's strengths rather than his weaknesses. Maybe this means you write down some of the strengths that your husband has, and you you think about those things. Spend time to seek to understand him better. If you've never, as a married couple, or even as a dating couple, spent spent the time to do a, um, a personality test, highly would encourage it. Uh, you, you learn stuff about yourself, you learn stuff about your, your spouse or, your, or the person you're dating that you never knew before. And at times, especially in your relationship, if there's been some building animosity, uh, there can be a switch that can be turned in your, in your mind by just the, the information that you gain from this because you're, you're gaining empathy and, and you go from having this animosity towards your spouse where you're thinking gosh they're constantly out to to get me they they're just they're they're just kind of like jerk a jerk to me to uh, switching from that to understanding okay they're broken just like I'm broken and we both need to help each other sometimes that personality test can can help navigate you through that help you uh, help you really Foster that gospel grace that you need in your heart. And so respect him in thought. Focus on his strength. Get to know him. Understand him. Secondly, respect him in word, both privately and publicly. Give him, I I would encourage you, give him specific encouragements. Instead of just saying something simple like, I love you, say something more specific like, I love when you invest in our, our kids' education by helping them with their homework. Okay, say specific, there, there's power in specific encouragement. Now, on the flip side of that, watch your discouraging words. How, how do you criticize him? Again, it's not, I'm not saying you should never bring up issues and problems, but, but how are you doing that? Especially in, in public. I, I appreciate so much Cameron, from the very beginning of our relationship, made a rule with herself that she would never talk negatively about me with, with other people. And that doesn't mean that she doesn't have friends that she shares concerns with. But if you're going to talk to your girlfriends about your husband, make sure, first of all, you're talking to somebody that can be objective. Um, Make make sure you're not just sharing things that you're angry about with them so that they will encourage and feed that anger. That's not healthy. Talk to somebody that is spiritually mature, that can be objective, that can... (laughs) can look at the situation and that they love both of you and they can give you wise counsel and point you to the gospel. And so it's okay to have those type of conversations, but make sure that when, when you go back to your husband, that, like James says, you're, you're slow to speak, you're slow to anger, you're, you're quick to listen. Think about the three T's, text, time, and tone. Text. Think about, before you say it, think about what you're going to say. That's the text. Think about the time. When are you going to bring this up? Often, 10 o'clock at night is not the best time to bring up a major concern while you're both exhausted, right? Those are usually when uh, the major arguments happen, when you're both exhausted. You can't think straight. And then think about your tone. Sometimes you can be saying the right thing, but the tone is just wrong. Think about how you're saying it. So text, time, and tone. Speaks, be slow to speak, slow to anger, quick to listen. And then also I would encourage you, talk positively about your husband to your kids, not just on Father's Day, but consistently. Finally, respect him indeed. Your posture towards your husband says a great deal. Does your posture, what does your posture communicate? Are you are you standoffish? Are you. Do you come across indifferent at times? Do you come across inattentive? Or are you affectionate? An affectionate touch, a, a simple smile can speak volumes at times. Intimacy is a powerful reminder to your husband that you value him, that you love him, that you, that you need him. And finally, Pray for your husband. I mean, there's no greater way to respect him, to to be a helper than to intercede on his behalf, recognizing what God has called him to do is impossible apart from the grace of God. And so pray that God would strengthen him as a leader. Pray that that your husband would be a strong father figure. Pray that Christ would would be his greatest joy. Pray for him. Peter gives great hope to wives, and especially... Wives that are in difficult situations. That through your respectful and pure conduct, that God may use that to win your husband. See, when you show gracious respect, especially when you show respect when he doesn't de- deserve it, I mean, that, that, that you, you can shop, shock him into loving you in, the, in those moments. You, your husband will believe that he can do hard things. In those, when you respect your husband... I mean, he, he just becomes more of a man. He, he believes that he can, he can do hard things. Mercy Hill, Mercy Hill has been by far the hardest thing that I have ever tried to accomplish in my life. And I guarantee, Mercy Hill would not be here today if it wasn't for Cameron supporting me, being my, my helper, respecting me, encouraging me. You encourage your husband to do hard things. You encourage your husband to lead. To, to, it discourages him from being passive. It encourages him to be a biblical leader. It encourages him to step up, to be the initiator that God has called him to be. And it encourages him to love you more. It can break, you know, the crazy cycle you kind of get into sometimes in married life where you just add each other's throat, it seems like. Usually that's because the husband has felt disrespected and the wife has felt unloved. And so when you're in the midst of the, the crazy cycle, the, the way to break the crazy cycle is to ask yourself, okay, how, as, as a wife, you ask the question, okay, how have I been disrespectful or how have I come across disrespectful? And as a husband, you need to ask the question, okay, how have I come across unloving? And if you can ask that question, if you can have the humility, and it's hard, if you can have the humility to ask that question in the midst of the crazy cycle, that's how the crazy cycle gets broken. And then finally, when you graciously respect your husband, you you honor God. You reflect the the church's response to Christ's love for us. The gracious respect that you're called to doesn't come easy. I get that. And so husbands, you need to be gracious with your, your wives with this also. And that's why we need prayer. That's why we need to ask God. To, to lead us in this direction. But like I said, marriage is like a dance. And, and, when, and when we complement one another, where the man steps up and leads like he's called to lead, and the, the woman follows like she's called to follow, it can be a joy, joyful and, and beautiful thing. And, and when the rest of the world sees that, maybe they, they, they might recognize that what the Bible says is not all that crazy after all. But we got to lead the right way. We need to follow the right way as God has called us. Let's pray that God would help us to do that. Father, you have called us to something that is so difficult, that is so impossible apart from the grace of your Spirit. And so I plead with you that you would give us more grace, that you would give us more mercy to be able to, to live lives that, that honor you as a reflection of of Christ and the church. Help us to do this, Lord. We cannot do this apart from you. I pray for the husbands out there that you would give them the strength to lead well, that they would love their wives as Christ loves the church. And I pray for wives that they would, that they would respect, that they would submit to their husband as the Christ, as the church is to submit to Christ and that we would complement one another that we we would uh, we would enjoy one another because of that and so we need your help thank you lord for what you're doing in the midst of our hearts we pray these things for your glory in Jesus name amen all right as we move into a time of